This is KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. The opinions expressed on the coming show is, are not necessarily those of the regents of the University of California nor the management of KUCI. This is Dan Zhang with Subversity here on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. Today we're going to commemorate the fifth anniversary of the U.S. invasion of Iraq and hear from some anti-war veterans who will talk about their experiences while in the battlefields in the countries where U.S. has deployed them, including Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, this is part of the fifth anniversary events um, that have taken place over the weekend. Uh, there were three days of testimony by veterans about the situation they faced uh, these are called Winter Soldier 2008, and it follows up on the 1971 Winter Soldier testimony that was eventually um, put in Congress. Uh, the testimony was uh, heard in Congress. So there's a hope that this type of testimony will also get a hearing in Congress. But before that happens, we're happy to we broadcast the, some of the testimony, portions of this testimony that was um, broadcast all weekend, uh, three days actually, on KPFA. And one of the um, ironies of uh, veteran service in these wars of U.S. imperialism is that you don't have to be a citizen. You can be a non-citizen. You can volunteer in the Army. And in theory, your citizenship will come quicker if you volunteer. But of course, that's not always true. And that's just the storyline they give you. Uh, there are actually thousands, thousands, 35,000 legal immigrants without citizenship, permanent residents who are now serving in the U.S. military. But what happened to one of them is instructive. He served, he was among the soldiers that were the Marines, the U.S. Marines that were sent to Iraq among the first batch of Marines that rode into Iraq when the U.S. invaded. When he came back, he was sitting in his office in his barracks in Camp Pendleton. He was told to see his officer, and then he was arrested and detained and put in, the, in, um, in prison, basically, uh, because he was said to be deportable. And here's this immigrant, permanent resident, who served for the U.S. Army, for the U.S. military, um, served in the Marines, and came back and was put away, uh, in, incarcerated, and court-martialed for, uh, as a setup, as a prelude to being de deported. Um, because he was actually he had been court-martialed for some incident earlier, and so that made him ineligible for U.S. citizenship. So we'll hear this dispatch from KPFA um, talking to this Marine from Camp Pendleton. I got to war with Haiti while I was on active duty. It would have been my obligation as a, as a Marine to... to fight against Haiti, assuming they had the forces to fight against us, I would have to fight against my own country in Pledge of Allegiance to America. But yeah, with all this, you're going to tell me I, 
I no longer qualify for citizenship. You're listening to The War Comes Home, warcomeshome.org, a project of KPFA Radio. I'm Aaron Glantz. In 2003, Philippe Louis-Jean served as part of the initial invasion of Iraq in the 1st Battalion, 5th Marines Weapons Company, which took heavy fire as it secured one of Saddam Hussein's palaces. When he returned to Camp Pendleton, he thought his days of danger were over. Then his commanding officer called immigration. He, he stepped out of his jurisdiction and called the immigration officials and told them, hey, you know what, I have this Marine here. I, I don't know exactly what he said, but it had to go along the lines of, you know what, I have a Marine here, you know, I want you to look into his records and, you know, maybe come arrest him if you can. He had me come sit in his office that day for about two, two and a half hours waiting for, for the um, immigration to come. I wasn't afraid because I felt, hey, I hadn't done anything wrong, so what could they possibly be up to? Sure enough, I saw um, what's, what appeared to be some detectives pull up in a, in a standard detective car. Then what came to my mind is like, okay, so what is it that they're trying to do? So now um, these, these officers go into the, the first sergeant's office, um, they're speaking to him, then they call me in there. Philippe Louis-Jean was born in Haiti but moved to the United States at age five and grew up in Brooklyn. He joined the Marine Corps straight out of high school and assumed he was already on track to be a U.S. citizen. The immigration officer introduced himself and he said he's going to arrest me because um, I, I am deportable. I laughed. I was like, ha-ha, um, both my parents are citizens. Um, I have my green card. I'm a combat veteran. Um, well, and, and my parents were citizens before I attained the age of 18. So um, I don't know what you're talking about. He's like, I looked into your records and so on. You are, de- you are deportable and you are under arrest. I was like, you're joking. Right? I said, like, I'm sorry, but I'm not joking. And that was that. Arrested me, put me in handcuffs, paraded me around the, um, my barracks, which is like an apartment building where all, the, all us... Uh, military guys live, paraded me upstairs for a while just so they could get my paperwork, uh, my green card, paraded me back down through the, gar- through the parking lot so everybody could see me, and then put me in the car. So uh, that was what the first sergeant did while my wife was in the hotel waiting for me. Immigration officials told Louis-Jean he could be deported because he cheated on his wife. In 2002, Camp Pendleton officials had caught him having sex with another woman charged him with sodomy and adultery, and sentenced him to 37 days in the military brig. It was a small infraction and did not prevent the Marine Corps from sending Louis-Jean on a tour to Iraq. But immigration officials said the crime was serious enough to deport him, and Louis-Jean was incarcerated at San Diego Correctional Facility, a private prison run by the Corrections Corporation of America. I was shocked they would actually have a combat veteran, you know, in immigration prison, you know, it was mind-boggling to me. I couldn't believe that they let this happen. And everybody kind of shrugged their shoulders like, oh, well, what's so special about you? Yes, you just came back from a war. Yes, you know, you, 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 almost, you almost shot. You know, yes, you were almost blown up, but who cares? Ten months after he was thrown into San Diego Correctional Facility, the Board of Immigration Appeals dismissed the case against Philippe Louis-Jean on a technicality, and he was released from prison a free man. Now, Louis-Jean attends community college classes in Southern California. He wants to eventually transfer to UC Berkeley to get a master's in business administration. But because of his court-martial for adultery, the Iraq War veteran can never become a U.S. citizen. Had America gone to war with Haiti while I was on active duty, it would have been my obligation as a a Marine to, to fight against Haiti. Assuming they had the forces to fight against us, I would have to fight against my own country in Pledge of Allegiance to America. But yet, 
with all this, you're going to tell me I, I no longer qualify for citizenship. There should be no reason whatsoever once somebody pledges, in my opinion at least, once somebody um, pledges to join the military and, and, you know, is in the military, there should be no reason whatsoever that person cannot attain citizenship. So Louis-Jean is looking at the possibility of leaving the United States, possibly for Canada or Australia, even though he still considers himself an American. Once I get my MBA, I, I will most likely move to Canada, be, become a, get, um, attain a green card, and later on become a citizen, which I think takes three to five years, become a citizen. Only after that will I move back to America, and I'll have a bit more comfort knowing that, you know what, should anything happen, if, the, if they do try to deport me, I'll get deported to Canada as opposed to, as opposed to Haiti, a country that, that's in political turmoil for as long as I could remember, um, and uh, where they, they probably uh, try to kill me because of you know what I've done and what they know about me and, and the military in America and so on. So, I mean, mm-hmm. so it's no if ands, or buts about it. I am going to have to get to this issue somewhere different. Pentagon officials estimate there are now about 35,000 non-citizens serving in the military. You're listening to The War Comes Home, warcomeshome.org, a project of KPFA Radio. I'm Aaron Glantz. That was uh, a dispatch from KPFA uh, talking with a Camp Pendleton Marine who, even though he had been caught martial, was sent to uh, Iraq uh, and uh, had to fight there as a Marine. Uh, then he did that service, came back, and was told he would be deported. So they're using us just as cannon fodder. They just need more bodies, don't they? Uh, here's another excerpt from a test uh, from different days of testimony um, at this uh, winter 2008 uh, soldier winter soldier 2008. Um, it's uh, the word winter soldier is based on the um, writings of Thomas Paine. Talks about um, soldiers in the winter of uh, our Revolutionary War, and um, so this was used during the Vietnam War with testimony from soldiers during the Vietnam War in 1971, talking about the atrocities they saw. And so we jump ahead to 2008, and we hear from veterans talking about the atrocities they saw in Iraq, Afghanistan, and elsewhere, where U.S. has deployed them. Good afternoon, everybody. Uh, I'd like to thank everyone for uh, taking the time to bear witness to the eyewitness accounts. Of, uh, of those who speak out against what they know is wrong. Second, I'd like to thank my uh, fellow panelists. It takes a uh, special courage to do this. Um, my name is Domingo Roses. I was a sergeant. I was deployed to Iraq with the 3rd Armored Cavalry Division, <clears throat> or 3rd uh, Armored Cavalry Regiment, excuse me, from uh, April 2003 to 2004. Uh, I am a combat veteran. I was stationed uh, in the Al-Ambar presence on the western edge on the Syrian border. We, uh, we, we occupied a local train station there uh, in, in an area called Al-Qaim, and, uh, which we called Tiger Base. Uh, while at Tiger Base, I was put in charge of the detainee site, which, uh, which consisted merely of the, one of those shipping containers that we're all familiar with, or at least most of us. Um, <clears throat> And uh, the shipping container and uh, just a single building surrounded by barbed wire. Uh, I had two soldiers uh, to back me up when I was handling the detainees. And uh, I was briefed by the sergeant uh, 
that, uh, that I relieved that the men in the shipping container were captured combatants and uh, I was to deprive them of sleep. So I had them standing inside the shipping container facing the walls, no talking. Um, I let them have blankets because it was cold. But uh, they were not allowed to sit down or lay down. Any time they started uh, falling out or dozing off, they put their heads on the wall. I would be on the outside of the shipping container, and I'd just smack this, the shipping container with, uh, with a pickaxe handle, try to wake them up and keep them awake. <clears throat> the men in the building were non-combatant detainees just being held for questioning. <clears throat> there were 93 men altogether. Uh, using one of them to translate... I told them that they had a clean slate with me. If they didn't give me any trouble, then the next 24 hours would pass calmly. If they did, I told them it was going to be a long 24 hours. And I just prayed that they didn't give me any trouble because I didn't know what I would have had to do. <clears throat> they, even, uh, they even told me I was a good man while I was uh, in charge of them. One day a body bag was dropped off to me. When the soldiers came to retrieve it the next morning, they just threw it on top of some junk in the back of a truck. But the rigor mortis had already set in, and it wouldn't fit down inside the truck on top of the stuff. So the soldier, the soldiers started stomping on it. I mean, like, really stomping on it. I couldn't imagine. You know, I, I was like, how, how can you do that? I also had a former Iraqi general, uh, some of you may have heard of, who uh, was taken from my custody. I was told to uh, keep him separated from uh, the other non-combatants and uh, give him everything he needs. If you ask for anything, hook him up, you know, take care of him, and uh, don't harass him. And I was like, well, I don't need somebody to tell me to not harass somebody. Uh, I, it, he ended up, uh, a soldier came up to me later and ended up telling me that, you know, hey, uh, he, he died during questioning, during his, during his interrogation. And uh, I... I'm thinking to myself, how tough is a question have to be to kill? I don't, know what, I don't know exactly what went on during his interrogation, but he was fine when I had him. Days after he was taken from my custody, um, I had in my custody his 14-year-old son. A very bright child, spoke four languages. He was supposed to be taken to, uh, to his father. I was told that, you know, loosen his tongue up, get him to talk a little more, you know, uh, just try to get him to cooperate more. And uh, instead, that boy was being taken to identify his father's body. Now, I'm not sure, but it's possible that if he wasn't, that child, if that child was pro-American or just one of our friends, an ally, possible ally of us, I'm pretty sure he wasn't an ally of ours anymore. Sometime later, the detainee site was uh, taken over and rebuilt by uh, men that we were told to call OGAs, which stood for Other Governmental Agency. Uh, however, you know, that's a pretty vague term. Um, they, built, uh, they built high walls around the uh, detainee center. And uh, I figured, well, yeah, you know, the terrorists, you know, you don't want them seeing out, you don't want them, you know, you want to contain them, deny them like any kind of uh, uh, possible information that they can use to possibly escape. And then later on, I realized that it wasn't just so detainees couldn't see out, it was so we couldn't see in. 
One night I was told to uh, give a message down to the detainee site. I knocked on the door, and when they opened it, I witnessed one detainee, detainee being kicked around on the ground in the mud, rolled over again and again. Just the, the agent was just kicking him with his foot, just rolling him over in the mud, pouring water on his face. You know, the, the whole waterboarding thing. And uh, another detainee was standing there with a bag over his head and uh, was forced to carry a huge rock until he just physically couldn't do it anymore and just collapsed. That image seared itself into my mind's eye. And I can't forget it. I won't forget it. Sorry. As I wrap this up, I just want to say two things. The longer we live as a human race, we're supposed to be getting smarter and wiser and better. And to the vets that we're trying to bring home alive, decades from now, when you got your grandchild sitting on your knee, bouncing in front of you, just try to remember what we did here today under the flag, IVAW. Thank you. IVAW refers to uh, Iraq War Iraq Veterans Against the War, and their website is ivaw.org. We go to the next uh, person who testifies, and he's My name a is Jeff journalist who was DC in the National Guard of Iraq Veterans um, Against the War, shipped off to Iraq. Nine years in the New York and he Army writes National for Truth Guard. Out. Truth Thirteen out. months of that was spent as a sergeant in Operation Iraqi Freedom, stationed at Forward Operating Base Spiker the majority of that time. At the end of my tour of duty and at the end of my military career, I went UA for nine months. They mailed me my honorable discharge in May of 2007. It's no surprise for anyone who's been in the military since September 11th especially not for those of us who have been deployed since September 11th, that the word Haji is used to dehumanize people, not just of Iraq and Afghanistan, but anyone there who is not us. We bought Haji DVDs at the Haji shops from the Hajis that worked there, the KBR employees that did our laundry that were from Pakistan became Hajis, the KBR employees who worked inside of our chow halls became hajis. Everyone that was not a U.S. force became a haji. Not a person, not a name, but a haji. I used to have conversations with members of my unit, and I would ask them why they use that term, especially members of my unit who are people of color. It used to shock me that they would and their answers were very similar almost always, and that was, they're just Hajis, who cares? And that came from ranks as low as mine, sergeant, all the way up to lieutenant colonel in my unit. The highest ranking officer that I ever heard use these words was the highest ranking officer at, during my deployment in Iraq, General Casey. During a briefing that my unit the 42nd Infantry Division Rear Operations Center at Fob Spiker gave to General Casey, I heard him refer to the Iraqi people 
as Hajis. I've heard several generals, including the 42nd Infantry Division Commander, General Toledo, and my own general that I worked for, Brigadier General Sullivan, use these terms in reference to the Iraqi people. These things start at the top, not at the bottom. These I have one story that I want to share with you. One of the most horrifying experiences of my tour that still stays with me was during a briefing that I gave. It was actually in the early summer of 2005. For those who've deployed to Iraq or Afghanistan, we know that a year becomes a month, a month becomes a day, and a day becomes a second, a second that repeats over and over and over again, not just for your tour, but the rest of your life. So I wish I could name the exact date, but unfortunately, that day has become a second that is repeated and repeated and repeated. But on a day in the early summer of 2005, in the area of operation of the 42nd Infantry Division, there was a traffic control point shooting. Traffic control point shootings are rather common in Iraq. They happen on a near or daily basis. What happened was a vehicle was driving very quickly towards a traffic control point. A young machine gunner made the split-second decision that that vehicle was a threat and in less than a minute put 200 rounds from his 50 caliber machine gun into that vehicle. That day he killed a mother, a father, and two children. The boy was age four and the daughter was age three. I was in the briefing that evening when it was briefed to the general. And after the officer in charge briefed it to the general in a very calm manner, Colonel Rochelle of the 42nd Infantry Division, DISCOM commander, turned in his chair to the entire... I looked around the talk at the other officers, at the other enlisted men mostly higher enlisted. As a sergeant, I think I was the lowest ranking person in that room. And I didn't see one dissenting body language, one disagreeing head nod. Everyone was in agreement that it's true. If these effing hajis learn to drive, this S wouldn't happen. I couldn't believe it, but it was true. That stayed with me the rest of my tour. I looked around every time that word Haji was used and I thought about that soldier who will carry that with him for the rest of his life and I thought about the four Iraqis whose bloodline was ended on that day. And Colonel Rochelle could not think of any of that but only his own racism and dehumanization that has started at the commander-in-chief of this war and worked its way down the entire chain of command. I would like to thank my fellow panelists and everyone who has testified and offered testimony that will not be heard publicly for Winter Soldier, Iraq and Afghanistan eyewitness accounts of the occupation. It has been the utmost honor, more honor than I ever gained from putting on a uniform to sit up here with the greatest patriots of American history. Thank you.
That was Jeffrey Millard,、uh, who is a contributor to the website、uh, Truthout.org, a journalist,、um, and he was a former member of the New York National Guard, and、uh, after 9/11 helped to protect Ground、G、Zero in New York, and then was shipped off to a tour in Iraq. The legacy of racism、uh, doesn't start with Iraq. The U.S. used terms like、uh, "gook" in the in the Philippines when the U.S. was involved, almost a、uh, over hundred, some hundred years ago, almost, and that was、uh, <clears throat> that was the beginning when the U.S. military used derogatory terms to refer to people who were not Americans, and it was continued to be used this that word. In Vietnam, and now there's a new term in Iraq. We hear some more testimony courtesy of KPFA.、Um, some of these audios, audio、uh, clips are online at warcomeshome.org, which is the web archive of these few days of testimony this past weekend of Winter Soldier 2008. My name is Christopher Arendt, and I would like to、uh, share with you how one goes about becoming a concentration camp guard without ever having really made many decisions. I was 17 years old when I joined the United States Army National Guard in Michigan. My family had been displaced, and I was living with friends. And I decided to join the military because I had no other options. My family was poor, I was poor, and I wanted to go to school. I was promised a significant amount of money for this purpose, which I have yet to receive.、Um, and、so、I joined the field artillery,、uh, Charlie First and the One Nineteenth Field Artillery,、uh, where I served quite happily for. No, that's a lie. I was miserable. I hated it,、um, but I、uh, served nonetheless. I was usually at drill,、um, and my uniform was usually、uh, well. I, it was on, and、uh, it didn't really seem. Oh, I, I joined November twentieth of two thousand and one, which was after September eleventh. Though I lied about it later and said that I joined before September eleventh. Uh, and we got the orders in October of 2003 that we would be deploying to Guantanamo Bay, Cuba. Artillerymen would be deploying to Guantanamo Bay, Cuba, to be prison guards in a prison camp.、Um, in our mobilization process, which lasted the period of one month in Fort Dix, New Jersey. We were taught how to put shackles on other people. I remember it feels so ridiculous when you are practicing how to put shackles on another human being. You realize how absurd it is. You put you're putting them on、uh, somebody's hands, and it's just awkward. It's just an awkward thing, and it hurts. It's uncomfortable. It 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 feels dehumanizing. It just this is just practice. This is just to warm up for the big game. And、uh, I just felt so silly the whole the whole thing, and、uh, we 
we left for Guantanamo Bay uh, early in January and got there uh, safely. It was hot. It was uncomfortable. Um, and uh, we slept in these awful little houses, but at least we had houses. I mean, the rest of the testimonies you've heard here not had some of the luxuries that we were given in Guantanamo, but um, I uh, served on the blocks for two months as a prison guard. My duties were to feed, uh, properly dispense toilet paper, and occupy myself in some way, shape, or form to drive, <laughs> drive the boredom out. That was the primary difficulty in keeping my humanity in touch with the boredom all of the time. Um, one of the ways I dealt with this was talking with the detainees because an unfortunate consequence of having detainees is that they are human beings and also have stories and I talked with them about those stories which became an incredibly unpopular event or a series of events um, which led to my being taken off the blocks to work in the detention operations center as the escort control for the next eight months of my tour uh, and it, during that time I, I personally managed as an E4 um, the movements of every detainee in Camp Delta for 12 to 14 hour shifts um, and rotated with a very small other crew, a crew of other E4s, 20, 20, I was 19 at the time. Uh, and just papers, numbers, shackles, keys, all of it had to be accounted for, but it wasn't anything more than papers and shackles and numbers and keys. And I'd call two people and usually over outranking me and I'd have to tell them to do something that they hated doing and they hated me for telling them to do it. Uh, but it's, that's, the, that's the organization of the machine. It, it's just, it, we're just, it's just a, one ridiculous piece of meat and a plinko machine of orders that come down from God knows who where. I, I, knows, where it just it just keeps coming down and it just keeps going through. Um, there are two specific things I would like to address about the operation of Guantanamo Bay Cuba. One is the issue of torture. Um, I've heard a lot of speculation as to what torture is considered. First and foremost, I would like to ask of everyone. Well, I don't really expect an answer, but I just for your own considerations, whether or not living inside of a cell for five years away from your family and your friends without ever, ever, ever being given any answers as to why you're there, asking 19-year-old boys that don't have any idea about the policy of our government and the politics that make these things happen, why they're there, and the answers that we weren't able to give. Uh, I, I consider that torture. But if that weren't enough, if that wasn't enough, um, there were other methods as well to make certain that we got around to torturing these people. Um, as I said earlier, I was I, I dispatched the detainee movements. I uh, I would come into the office at 4:30 in the morning, and sometimes there would be a little paper in the wall with a number on it, 
which represented a detainee, which represented a detainee inside of an interrogation room, uh, an interrogation room which was anywhere from maybe 10, 20 degrees in temperature uh, with loud music playing, and that detainee had been there for an indeterminate amount of time, and sometimes that detainee would stay there for my entire 12 to 14 hour shift, shackled to the floor by his hands and his feet with nothing to sit on, with loud music playing in the freezing cold. And I guess that's torture too. It depends on who you ask. I hear that there's an official list of things that are and are not torture. Waterboarding is, this is not, my recent example is not torture. I can't believe that a human being could even write a list like that, but... The other issue I would like to address is the common usage of uh, the instantaneous reactionary force, which is a five-man team established on the day. Every day it's a rotating force. Whoever's in the camp at that time, is, they, they make the teams in the morning. And if by any chance a detainee is unsatisfied with his stay and becomes rowdy, five grown men who have all been eating well, which is a privilege that these detainees are usually not allowed, are fitted with riot gear and a shield and are lined up outside of a cell while the platoon leader of that particular camp sprays the detainee in the face with OC spray. I don't know who in here has been sprayed with OC spray, but... I'm positive that anybody that has would never want it to happen again. I had it happen to me, and I, I certainly feel as that that's probably the, one of the worst moments in my life. It was an incredibly, intensely painful experience, and I would never, ever want anyone to have this happen again, have this happen to them, I'm sorry. And uh, after spraying the detainee with this, which put me on my knees for probably two to three hours afterwards and in a great deal of pain for the next three days because it's oil-based and it's incredibly painful. Uh, these five men would rush in and take whatever opportunities they could to usually, though it's not, I'm, I, I have to state, think, because they, they did make a book about it. It's called the SOP. And it does not state that you should beat the S-word out of detainees, but... I guess that some people just decided that that's what they were going to do anyway. These are all on tape, by the way. The government makes sure that each one of these operations is taped. I taped several of them, uh, and I would certainly be, I would be so happy to be able to show you those, those clips, but I doubt that those will be released anytime soon. Um, after, the, after the detainee is taken forcibly from his cell, that he's, <laughs> this is probably the first time that he's left his cell, and five, six, seven days. I have to stop now. Um, thank you for listening to me. SOP is Standard Operating Procedure, and earlier UA means uh, probably uh, unexcused absence, unauthorized absence. You're listening to um, testimony from a weekend of... Uh, three days, actually, of uh, Winter Soldier 2008, courtesy of KPFA um, Radio and the website War Comes Home.
kuci.org. This is Subversity here on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the regents of the University of California, nor the management of KUCI. My name is Mike Preisner. Uh, I joined the Army, uh, left for basic training on my 18th birthday in June of 2001. I was assigned to the 10th Mountain Division, and in March of 2003, I was attached to the 173rd Airborne Brigade and deployed to northern Iraq. Um, so when I first joined the Army, uh, we were told that racism no longer existed in the military. Uh, a legacy of inequality and discrimination was suddenly washed away by something called the Equal Opportunity Program. Uh, we would sit through mandatory classes, and every unit had this EO representative uh, to ensure that no elements of racism could resurface. Uh, and the Army seemed firmly dedicated to smashing any hint of racism. And then September 11th happened, and I began to hear new words like towelhead and camel jack. Initially come from my fellow soldiers, but for my superiors, my platoon sergeant, my company first sergeant, battalion commander, all the way up the chain of command, these terms, these viciously racist terms were suddenly acceptable. I noticed that most, the most overt racism came from veterans of the first Gulf War. And those were the words they used when they were incinerating civilian convoys. Those are the words they used when this government deliberately targets civilian infrastructure, bombing water supplies, knowing that it would kill hundreds of thousands of children. Those are the words the American people used when they allowed this government to sanction Iraq. And this is something that many people forget, and we can't forget. is that we've just learned that we've killed over a million Iraqis since this invasion, but we already killed a million Iraqis in the 90s through sanctions and bombings prior to this invasion. So the number truly is much higher. But when I got to Iraq in 2003, I, I learned a new word, and that word was Haji. Haji was the enemy. Haji was every Iraqi. He was not a person, a father, a teacher, or a worker. And it's important, we've heard this word a lot, uh, during Winter Soldier, but it's important to understand where this, this word came from. And to Muslims, the uh, uh, most important thing is, is to take a pilgrimage uh, to Mecca, it's the Hajj. And someone who has taken this pilgrimage is a Haji. And it's something that in traditional Islam is, is the highest calling in the religion. So we took the best thing for a Muslim and, and made it into the worst thing. But history did not start with us, and since the creation of this country, Racism has been used to justify expansion and oppression. The Native Americans were called savages. The Africans were called all sorts of things to excuse slavery. And Vietnam veterans know of, of the multitude of words used to justify that imperialist war. So Haji was the word we used. It was the word we used on this particular mission I'm going to talk about. And we've heard a lot about different raids and kicking down the doors of people's houses and, and ransacking their houses. But this mission was, was different, a different kind of raid. Uh, I never got any explanation for these orders. We were only told that this, this group of houses, five or six houses, uh, were now property of the U.S. military, and we had to go in and make those families leave those houses. So we went to these houses and informed the families that those homes were no longer their homes. Uh, we provided them no alternative, nowhere to go, no compensation, uh, and they are very confused and very scared and, and did not know what to do. And 
would not leave, so we had to remove them from those houses. Uh, one family in particular, a woman with two small girls, a very elderly man and, and two middle-aged men, um, we, we dragged them from their houses and, and threw them onto the street and arrested the men because they refused to leave, uh, arrested the old man, and sent them off to prison. And at that time, I, I didn't know what happened to people when we, we tied their hands behind their back and, and put a sandbag on their head. But uh, unfortunately, a, a few months later, I, I, I had to find out. I was, we were short interrogators, so I was assigned to, to work as an interrogator. And uh, I oversaw and participated in uh, hundreds of, of interrogations. One in particular I'm going to share with you is it was, it was a, a moment for me that, that, that really showed me the, the nature of, of this occupation. Um, this, this particular uh, detainee, um, when I was uh, sent to interrogate him, he was stripped down to his underwear, um, hands behind his back, and, and sandbag on his head. Uh, I never actually saw this man's face. Um, my job was to take this metal folding chair and just smash it against the wall next to his head. He was, he was faced against the wall with his nose touching the wall, while a fellow soldier screamed the same question over and over again. No matter what his answer, my job was to slam the chair against his wall. Um, we did this until basically we got tired. And I was told to make sure he stood against the wall uh, for however long. And I was guarding this prisoner. And my job was to make sure he kept standing up. But something was wrong with his leg. He was, he was injured. And he kept like, like falling to the ground. Uh, and my, the sergeant in charge would, would come and, and tell me to, to get him up off his feet. So we'd, I'd have to pick him up and put him against the wall. And oh, he kept going down. I just have to keep pulling him up and putting him against the wall. And my sergeant came along, and, and he was upset with me for not you know, making him con, you know, continue to stand. Uh, he picked him up and, and slammed him against the wall several times. Um, and then... He left, and, and when the man went down on the ground again, I noticed blood pouring down from under the sandbag. Uh, and so I let him sit, and when I noticed my sergeant coming again, I would tell him to quickly to stand up. And I realized that I was supposed to be guarding my unit from this detainee, and at that point I realized I was guarding the detainee from my unit. And I tried hard to be proud of my service, but... All I could feel was shame, and racism could no longer mask the reality of the occupation. These were people. These were human beings. I've since been plagued by guilt anytime I see an elderly man, like the one who couldn't walk, who he rolled onto a stretcher and told the Iraqi police to take him away. I feel guilt anytime I see a mother with her children, like the one who cried hysterically and screamed that we are worse than Saddam as we forced her from her home. I feel guilt anytime I see a young girl, like the one I grabbed by the arm, and drag him to the street. We were told we were fighting terrorists. The real terrorist was me, and the real terrorism is this occupation. Racism within the military has long been an important tool to justify the destruction and occupation of another country. It has long been used to justify the killing, subjugation, and torture of another people. Racism is a vital weapon employed by this government. It is a more important weapon than a rifle, a tank, a bomber, or a battleship is more destructive than an artillery shell or a bunker buster or a tomahawk missile. 
While those weapons are created and owned by this government, they are harmless without people willing to use them. Those who send us to war do not have to pull a trigger or lob a mortar round. They do not have to fight the war, they merely have to sell the war. They need a public who is willing to send their soldiers into harm's way. They need soldiers who are willing to kill and be killed without question. They can spend millions on a single bomb, but that bomb only becomes a weapon when the ranks in the military are willing to follow orders to use it. They can send every last soldier anywhere on earth, but there will only be a war if soldiers are willing to fight. And the ruling class, the billionaires who profit from human suffering, who care only about expanding their wealth, controlling the world economy, understand that their power lies only in their ability to convince us that war, oppression, and exploitation is in our interest. They understand that the wealth, their wealth is dependent on their ability to convince the working class to die to control the market of another country. And convincing us to kill and die is based on their ability to make us think that we are somehow superior. Soldiers, sailors, marines, airmen have nothing to gain from this occupation. The vast majority of people living in the U.S. have nothing to gain from this occupation. In fact, not only do we have nothing to gain, but we suffer more because of it. We lose limbs, endure trauma, and give our lives. Our families have to watch flag-draped coffins lowered into the earth. Millions in this country without health care, jobs, or access to education must watch this government squander over $450 million a day on this occupation. Poor and working people in this country are sent to kill poor and working people in another country to make the rich richer. And without racism, soldiers would realize that they have more in common with the Iraqi people than they do with the billionaires who send us to war. I threw families onto the street in Iraq, only to come home and find families thrown onto the street in this country, in this tragi tragic and unnecessary foreclosure crisis. And we need to wake up and realize that our real enemies are not in some distant land. They're not people whose names we don't know and cultures we don't understand. The enemy is people we know very well and people we can identify. The enemy is a system that wages war when it's profitable. The enemy is the CEOs who lay us off from our jobs when it's profitable. It's the insurance companies who deny us health care when it's profitable. It's the banks who take away our homes when it's profitable. Our enemy is not 5,000 miles away. They are right here at home. And if we organize and fight with our sisters and brothers, we can stop this war, we can stop this government, and we can create a better world. My name is Andrew Duffy. I enlisted in the Iowa National Guard two days after I turned 17 years old, which was on March 21st of 2003. Uh, I was enlisted as a medic, and in 2005 to 2006, I was stationed at the Abu Ghraib prison as a medic. I did det detainee operations as well as convoy operations, and I was on what they called the trauma team. Um, the first incident I would like to talk about happened on March 13th of 2006 <clears throat> involving a freshly captured detainee at the in-processing center. Could you move to the next slide, please? 
that was the uh, sign outside the in processing center. Winning the hearts and minds of the Iraqi people one detainee at a time. I can tell you about how they won one of those mines. Uh, me and my fellow medic were making our rounds to the in-processing centers we normally did when a truckload of new captures would come in because they often come in in truckloads because they would arrest any military-aged male that was in the vicinity of an incident. So as we were going through these people and evaluating them and checking them out, one uh, young man stood out to me as being uh, particularly irate and uh, kind of out of it, almost seeming drunk. And I uh, felt it was necessary to take his blood sugar. Normal blood sugar, in, when I went through medic training, was said to be between 80 and 120. When I took his blood sugar, it was 431. I then called the officer in charge of the hospital that was at Abu Ghraib and requested that we were able to transport that detainee. And he had spoken to me in English, he could speak English very well, that he had um, been taking insulin and that he had been captured by the Iraqi forces held by them for approximately four to five days. He wasn't quite sure. And that they had not given him his insulin, but supposedly it was in his personal effects. I was told twice over the phone, ordered by Captain Hogan of the 344th Cash, that I could not transport the detainee and that he needed to drink water. She also stated that he was a haji and he probably wouldn't die, but it would not matter if he died anyway. Later on that night, we went through our various calls, went to the various camps, did our stuff, did some medevacs, did a little bit of everything on the trauma team. You know, you'd medevac soldiers in and out of the hospital. And we got another call from the camps from level three, which was the camp that you were initially put into once you got into the uh, facility to kind of see how you went, you know, if you were going to be a bad apple or a good apple and put into one of the lower levels with less supervision. So me and my partner, again, this would now be in the early hours of March 14th, went back to the camp to see the same individual who is now more irate, uh, more of a intoxicated-looking appearance, sweating profusely. I um, was called Captain Hogan again over the radio and the phone and again was denied permission to um, take him to the hospital and there was little I could do and she told us to give him water and to give him an IV through a 14 gauge IV. A normal IV that would be given to a person would be an 18 to 20 gauge. 14 gauge would be about the size of a pencil lead inside the, of like a, your standard wooden pencil. So we did that, and then we uh, got off our shift. We had another shift the next day, and then on March 15th, which would have been two years ago today, me and my partner were awoken out of our beds and told that we uh, needed to go down and be interrogated by a uh, CID colonel about the death into the uh, detainee that we had seen the previous night. And... Uh, the captain, Ho the captain, Captain Hogan, said that we had never called her and that we had never tried to transport her. But what happened to the young man, he was 23 years old, was that the MPs on the morning of March 15th mistook his behavior, which was diabetic shock, as 
insubordination. They pepper sprayed him, and then they put him into a segregation cell in the sun, and that's where he spent his last few hours. And then he died in route to the hospital in uh, one of our ambulances. So about a few, I don't know, about three days after that, we were uh, interrogated again by a lieutenant colonel, at which time I filled out a five-page sworn statement. Um, and we were cleared of everything, and Captain Hogan was still allowed to be the officer in charge of the hospital at Abu Ghraib at night. And uh, that's my first story. I also have a second story that emphasizes the, uh, the racism and the word haji that is often used similar to as a person, a racist in this country would use the N-word or any other term or a group of people, derogatory term. I got a call that there was an unconscious detainee in one of the camps that was usually a camp that held uh, very docile prisoners, older, they weren't prisoners, they were detainees, but older detainees, people who were going to be let loose soon. And uh, as I got there, we were prepping the ambulance. My partner drove the ambulance. I prepared the, uh, the oxygen, the non-rebreather mask, and I attempted to prepare the AED except for my platoon sergeant ordered the wrong pads for the AED. So when I arrived on scene, I was unable to shock him and revive him, which they later said probably would have saved his life. We had different ambulances for the detainees than we did when we would go out on American convoys to be medical support, and they were, had the older equipment. Uh, oftentimes the um, fluids and things would or prescription drugs would be expired, sometimes by years. Um, anyway, the detainee was unconscious. We attempted to ventilate him on the way to the hospital. Uh, we could not ventilate because the mask was so deformed because of the heat and because it was so old. So I performed mouth-to-mouth -mouth resuscitation on the detainee. And uh, a lot of people called them hajis and didn't like them because they were detainees, but to me, it was just an old man that could have been somebody's father, grandfather, or uncle. And I remember exactly how he looked, and I remember exactly how he felt, he, you know, dying in my hands. I revived him for about 15 seconds, at which point we were calling, my uh, assistant was calling ahead to the hospital. And uh, the hospital really wasn't responding. We got to the hospital to find them very apathetic. They... The two medics that were working the emergency room were sitting on cots sleeping. The emergency room doctor was playing Slingo, the computer game. I then had to continue in a hospital emergency room to perform mouth-to-mouth -mouth resuscitation on a detainee. And I uh, later overheard many comments about how that medic made out with that haji. And... Uh, you know, I was kind of isolated in that incident, and a lot of people came up to me and said, how, how the hell could you do that? And I, uh, I told them, you know, what if that was your grandfather, your father? You know, wouldn't you do the same thing? And uh, I, could, I could see where people... Could you move to the next slide, please? I could see where people wouldn't want to take care of these people because at the same time I would have to treat wounded U.S. soldiers, and I remember a time that 
I treated a Marine that had his legs blown off and he died in our care and then subsequently about a half an hour later I had to give a detainee pills for a headache but uh, you have to realize that uh, as a medic and uh, as a professional you need to treat these people the same and they are human beings and you can't treat them like uh, subhuman people. And um, I'll just finish up with a story about uh, a very short story. Me and the same medic who was with me on uh, the incident where the man died, the first incident, were called to the in-processing center where they had a man who was semi-unconscious in the back of a five-ton, which is a very, very big truck. And uh, he was restrained with his hands cuffed behind his back and his feet cuffed and... Uh, he was also blindfolded, and the sergeant in charge asked me if I felt as though he could walk the approximate 15 feet to the doorway, and I revived him, and I said he could probably walk with assistance to the doorway, and he then proceeded to pick the blindfolded man up by the flexi cuffs, throw him off the back of the Humvee, face down, chest down, in the gravel, and say, you can't spell abuse without Abu. That's all I have. So that was searing testimony from veterans of U.S. wars, of U.S. occupations abroad. Uh, you can't spell abuse without Abu, A-B-U, Abu Great. So that's um, what we were able to bring you uh, today uh, from last weekend's Winter Soldier 2008 testimony of what the reality is like for U.S. troops abroad and what they are doing over there. The website is warcomeshome.org where you can get more testimony from the several days of testimony. This is Dan Zhang with Subversity here. Thanks to KPFA for the clips. Here on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. The opinions expressed on the show were not necessarily those of the regents of the University of California, nor the management of KUCI.